Hey, let me take a quick poll here with a quick show of hands. How many of you all have had travel plans messed up because of COVID-19? Travel plans messed up. Almost everyone in the room. How many of y'all have had travel plans, uh, maybe friends or family that were going to come visit you from North Carolina or from South America messed up because of COVID-19? People were going to come visit you, vacation, Christmas maybe that didn't come because of that. Well, about exactly a year ago, I was going to have a pastor from Ethiopia, Pastor Tesfaye, pastor of Kale Hewat Church. Uh, they're much like Bayou City Fellowship. They're one church, and I think they've got three or four locations all throughout Ethiopia. And as I was hearing his story, listening to his story, uh, obviously that got canceled, so he was not able to come to Houston and meet with a group of pastors. He shared about the story of how one of their church buildings that they gathered in, this very small building, was actually burned down or leveled by some people who were antagonizing them. And you would think the people who tore their building down, their worship center down, would be like some militant group of maybe atheists or something, or someone who was opposed vehemently to their faith, but he said, here's the sad part of this, is that the greatest persecutor of Christians in Ethiopia, and he said to the south and southeast, there are some Muslims there, but he said mainly it's the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which is one of the oldest churches in uh, the world. Actually, it's right up there with the Roman Catholic Church, one of the oldest churches, but they are now in power with the state, with the government. So the government and the state church, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, have almost become like the state church. They become like one and the same. And so anytime there's a new denomination, anytime there's a new Christian group or that's rising up, he says what happens is they see it as competition and they quickly try to stomp it out. So can you imagine that? Ethiopian Orthodox Church that worships and serves the Lord Jesus Christ like we do, they are persecuting evangelicals and Pentecostals in Ethiopia who are trying to start churches and reach other people. Can you believe that? That he said the greatest source of our opposition is not some satanic cult or something like that, but he says is actually the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which has now become like entwined with the government. And so today we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the fact that we've been talking about our hearts being broken for what breaks God's heart, being on mission, serving, fulfilling God's purpose in this world of redemption and restoration. And you would think this, you would think that because you're doing what God has called you to do, commanded you to do, that you would have the wind behind you, the wind in your sails, and everything in your life would go smooth. But we're going to find today, we had hints of this already, that you're going to have opposition. So here's the question, is what do you do when you face opposition? What do you do when you face obstacles and opposition in the things that God has called and commanded you to do? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4. What to do when you face opposition or this, and this is for somebody specifically today. What do you do when you feel so discouraged, so disappointed that you feel like quitting, throwing in the towel? You said, you know what, God, this breaks my heart because it breaks your heart. I feel like this is what you want me to do, and I'm going to do it, and by the power of the Spirit, you do it, but you have opposition, challenges, trials. And so you say, God, it's not worth it. I'm going to throw in the towel. I'm done. I'm done with this ministry. I'm done with this marriage. I'm done with all this. I'm through. If you're at that point, that breaking point, this message is for you as well. And here's the reason why, again, is because all of us in here, if we're doing the will of God, we will have opposition. Look at verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 4. Sambalot was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? 
Do they think they can rebuild the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? So the first thing we see here in verses 1 through 3 is this mocking that comes from Sambalat. He's mentioned earlier as this one who's like a local governor. He knows that if they rebuild the wall, his power and his authority is at stake. So here's point number one. If you're doing God's mission, you will have opposition. If you are doing God's mission, you will have opposition. And in this crew, now there used to be just three people. Now there's a new added dimension. They've got uh, mockers and attackers in opposition from the north the south, the east, and the west. We just have a new guy that just came, Ashdodites, from the west side. So now they're surrounded by people who oppose them building the wall, rebuilding the wall. So again, point number one is this. Again, if you're doing God's mission, you will have opposition. Now the question is this. Is the opposition the actual people? And I want to give you this thing. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. And we'll find three sources of opposition. Three sources of opposition And then the ultimate source. So again, don't be surprised when you are doing God's purpose, his call, fulfilling the great commission, his purpose of redemption and restoration. If you experience opposition, verse one of chapter two, Ephesians two, once you were dead because your disobedience and your many sins, used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So in that passage, we find one thing is this. He mentions it uh, in Galatians as well. Galatians 5, 16 through 17 is the flesh, the flesh. At the very end there, He mentions the sin nature, and some translate that word. The word Greek is sarks, which we get things like sarcoma, sarks. It means literally flesh, like the flesh and skin that you have. But it can also mean this. In a spiritual sense, your flesh is that part of you that still tries to live a life independent of God. It's that part of you that still says, you can make it without God. You got this. You can do this on your own. You don't need God. Every need that you have You can meet. You don't need God in the picture. That's your flesh. And that's the part that regularly, if you're honest with yourself, is tempted to do things your way rather than God's way. So he says the first source of opposition is the fact, Galatians 5 says it, we're at war within ourselves. The spirit and flesh are at war. So we'll have internal opposition even our own selves. But then he says this. He says in verse uh, 2 is the, the world, the world, the world system. So he's not talking about literally like this world. If you look out the window like our city. He's talking about the world system. And that's what we talk about. We say worldliness. The world system, again, is saying that you can make it. You can have a great marriage. You can have a great life. You can do it, but just do it your way. You can have it without God. You can live a life of fulfillment, purpose, meaning, everything your way. You can be saved your own way. You can do everything your own way. That's what the world system teaches. And that's why James contrasts the wisdom from above and the wisdom of this world. He contrasts the two. And then the last thing, obviously, as you look at this, uh, he says this, uh, obeying the devil there in verse two. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. So the last opposition, as you can see here, is Satan himself, the devil. 
And that's why in Ephesians 6, 12, four chapters later, he says, we wrestle not you and I against flesh and blood. He says, but against principalities and powers. The ultimate thing about our opposition as you seek to expand God's kingdom is there's an opposing kingdom. As you seek to submit to God as your king, as your Lord, there's an opposing king and Lord that does not want to see God's kingdom grow and expand. So that's why Paul says, you think your problem is with your boss. It's not your boss. You think your problem is with that neighbor who's unruly. It's not your neighbor. He says, there's an unseen world and there's a commander of that unseen world and his name is Satan. So the three sources of opposition are, again, the flesh, the world, and the devil himself. And so here in, go back to Nehemiah, we'll see that there are two types of opposition, two types of opposition. So verses one through three, Sambalot begins to mock them, saying, you're not going to rebuild this wall. Everything is burned down. Can't do it. If he said, by praying about it, you think you're going to rebuild it? It's not going to happen. He says this in verse seven. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, so the Ashdodites, I think, are from the west, heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired. They were furious. They all made plans to come fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. So he says, again, as the walls begin to be rebuilt, they realize that these people aren't just praying, but they're putting some action, some faith to their prayer. He says they begin to see the wall and now they go from mocking to now violence. He says they threaten to attack them. So here's the first uh, type of opposition, external opposition from the defiant, external opposition from the defiant. So you're going to have external opposition. What does external mean? From those who are not Christians, from those who are not believers, you're going to have opposition from those who defy saying, again, we don't want God. You can make it without God. You don't need God. You're going to have opposition externally from those outside the church. And I believe these four groups typify that. He says, again, they mocked them and even threatened them. Um, and then you're going to have this. Um, look at verse six. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But then look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Then the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, began to complain. The workers are getting tired. There's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. So he says, in verse six, that the wall had been halfway built. We talked about this last week. The wall was 40 feet high, eight to nine feet wide, two miles to two and a half miles in circumference. And he says the wall was halfway built. So that's about 20 feet high surrounding most of the city. And he says in verse 10, what happens is now they receive internal opposition from the discouraged. So you can get external opposition from the defiant, but you can also get internal opposition from the discouraged. He says here that the people had rebuilt the wall halfway. Verse 10 says the people of Judah said, oh, man, we're tired. We don't have earth movers and tractors. We have to move all these stones by hand and by, by carrying them. He says, and look, and they probably said this, 20 feet's good enough, right? 20 feet's good enough. Like, I know we want a 40-foot high wall, eight, and a half, eight to nine feet wide around the whole city, but 20 feet should be enough, right? And this is often what happens is in your life and in ministry and in marriage, we put in the work and we see some results. We say, God, we believe that you're at work in our life. We believe you're at work in our ministry. So we sacrifice and put in the work and we see some results. But then this is what happens. Discouragement sets in because we think we put all this work in. And yes, there's some improvement, 
But God, I don't know if I have it in me to do any more work to get even beyond that. Are you all with me? Have you been there before where you're like, man, I put in the work at work or in my life or in my spiritual life or in my marriage or in ministry, and I feel like there's some progress been made, but it took me like 100 hours of work for like one hour results. Ever been there before? And you've been so discouraged because it's not like you're starting at zero and it's not like you completed it. You're like maybe partway there and you're just discouraged. I don't know if you heard this. Um, I was out for a run yesterday and just the most unusual run I've ever had. And um, this house said garage sale. Ever seen a garage sale on Saturday morning? And I just stopped by the garage sale. And the interesting sign was this. Uh, the garage sale wasn't for just some ordinary person who was moving or just trying to clutter their, declutter their garage. It was for Satan himself, the devil himself. And I was like shocked because there was a sign that said Satan's garage sale. And normally I don't mingle around and hang out with Satan, but I was a little curious. And so I said, let me check out this garage sale. And obviously he was a little hard on funds. He didn't buy any stock in GameStop at all. Um, and so on the table was this adult magazine and it said lust, $100. And I said, that's interesting. Next, it was a broken picture frame of lovers and it said jealousy, $500. Next to that was a crown. It said pride on it and it said $500. And then next to that was a shovel. And on the shovel, it had the words discouragement, and it said a million dollars. Curious, I said, hey, um, lust is 100, jealousy is 500, pride is 500. I said, why, why is discouragement a million dollars? Why is the price tag so high? He says, because it's one of my most effective weapons. And I said, why so? He says, because if I can get somebody to dig themselves in a deep hole of discouragement, often it's impossible for them to get out. And again, I don't know if you've ever been there before where you've gotten so discouraged by again, feeling like you've put in the work, you've made the sacrifices, and nothing seems to be going right. And he says, that's what happened to the people of Judah. They had this internal opposition because they were so discouraged. You all with me? And today, we're going to do at the very end, uh, we're going to have our prayer team up on the left and right. And if you're there today, and I imagine there's someone in this room that is, that you are so discouraged. You almost didn't come this morning saying, I don't know if it's even worth it to come worship with God's people. I feel like the last two or three weeks or in the last year of my life, I feel like this is what God wants me to do. I make the sacrifices and I'm just discouraged today. I feel like my marriage has made some progress, but you know, it's not worth it. I feel like I'm going to throw in the towel soon. This day is for you. So he says here that they receive opposition from internally, from people who are discouraged. I want to mention this too. Uh, I don't want you to get this confused. Um, if you are, again, leading, if you are fulfilling God's mission, you are going to receive criticism. You're going to receive criticism. If you do not want to receive criticism, if you are saying, hey, I don't want to ever be criticized for what I do, uh, Adam Greenway, who's the president of Southwestern Baptist Seminary, just preached uh, at Dallas Seminary, my alma mater, at chapel, and he said this way. He said, if you never want to receive criticism, say nothing, do nothing, change nothing, accomplish nothing, and be nothing. And if you do those things, You'll never receive criticism. But if you say God has broken my heart for what breaks his and I want to do what God has called me to do, you will receive criticism. You will receive criticism. Uh, and here's one more thing, just a little footnote here. Um, getting criticized because you're obnoxious and rude is not persecution. <laughs> All right. Uh, and I've seen that before. Like people are saying, you know, I, I got let go of my job because of persecution. I'm like, no, not really. 
So just, just make mention of that. He says you're going to have external opposition from the defiant and internal opposition from the discouraged. And if you're here today and you're discouraged, during our prayer time, I invite you to come on up and get prayed over. So what does he do? What does he do? Look at verses 4 through 6. And this is a common theme of Nehemiah. Then I prayed. And this is an imprecatory prayer, often done by David. And he's not saying, God, I'm going to take it in my own hands and I'm going to attack. He puts it in God's hands. Then I prayed, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. He goes back to Genesis 12. God saying, you know what? I'm going to have you have your descents as many as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea, of the, of the beaches and then the shore. And he says, and he says, anyone who opposes you and the work I've called you to do really opposes me. So what He's praying, Nehemiah praises, not saying, God, give me a chance to wipe them out. God, give me a chance to act vengeance. He says, God, I put them in your hands. You do what you need to do. I'm, I'm praying based on your word. And we looked at that before, how Nehemiah often knows God's word, the Old Testament promises, and he prays those promises. He says, God, you said, if anyone gets in your way, they're getting in your way. You handle them. And then he says this in verse nine, and this is our memory verse. Verse nine says this, but we prayed to our God and protected ourselves Day, uh, protect the city day and night to protect ourselves. And you can underline that word and. You can underline the word and. He says, and we prayed to our God and protected uh, the city day and night. Uh, so, sorry, I'm misquoting it again. I'm trying to memorize. The city day and night to protect ourselves. Guard the city day and night to protect ourselves. So he says they both prayed, but they also says, let's put some action. Let's put some uh, uh, obedience to our faith. If we really believe God's going to protect us, let's demonstrate our faith by our work. So here's point number two. Uh, pray to your protector when you face opposition, threats, and intimidation. And that's the verse that Alicia read this morning. Psalm 127, verse 1 and 2. He says, unless it's God who's, who's guarding the city, unless it's God who's guarding your house, unless it's God who's the one that's guarding and protecting this church, unless it's God is one who's your shepherd, who's protecting you, and you have all these things that you do to protect yourself, he says that's in vain, unless God is one doing it. So pray to your protector when you face threats, op opposition, threats, and intimidation. I think Psalm 127.1 is a good reference for that. But then with that again, he says, and guard the city day and night to protect ourselves. So here's point number three. Wisely protect yourself to demonstrate that you trust your protector wisely protect yourself. If you're saying I'm on God's mission, I'm doing what God has called me to do. And yes, I get discouraged. Yes, I get frustrated. But when I face opposition, both internally and externally, I'm going to trust God to protect me. And not only that, I'm going to pray and ask God to give me perseverance. When I feel like I'm going to throw in the towel and quit, I'm going to ask God to give me protection and perseverance to help me endure and keep putting one foot in front of the other. Look at verse 14. He says, then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord. Underline that. Remember the Lord who's great and glorious. And there's that word again. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So he says what they did was, he says, they remembered the character, the nature of God. God is a protective father. He protects us. He says, and because we believe that, he says, we got to arm ourselves to protect the city, protect our children, protect the wall as, they were, as, it, was being, as it was being rebuilt. So why does he protect yourself 
to demonstrate you trust your protector. He says in verse 15, when our enemies heard that we knew of their plans, and watch this, and that God had trusted them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half my men worked, while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, and bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their uh, load and one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeters stay with me to sound the alarm. He says this in verse 21 through 23. We work early and late from sunrise to sunset and half the men were always on guard. I always told everyone living outside the walls to stay in Jerusalem that they, uh, that way they and their servants could help with guard duty at night and during work, uh, during, sorry, work during the day. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor my guards who were with me, ever took off our clothes. We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. So again, he says, we were always wisely protecting ourselves, knowing that we had an external threat who wanted to oppose what God was doing through us. Now, reading these verses, I don't know if you've seen this movie. I'm not recommending it. I haven't seen it. I've just heard about it. This is not Sam Childers, the machine gun preacher all the time. Now, he felt a call to go to South Sudan to protect orphans, and he started an orphanage, and he started a church there. He had a radical conversion and felt like that's what God called him to do. He's able to rescue many, many orphans and all that. And he said he had opposition, and so he carried a machine gun to protect him and the orphans. And thus he was called the machine gun preacher. I'm not saying this is the application always here. I'm not saying this. I know tomorrow starts Black History Month. I'm not saying that you need to emulate Armentia Ross. And you're saying, who's Armentia Ross? She's better known as Harriet Tubman. She helped to rescue over 70 people as an abolitionist leader. She rescued another 750 uh, slaves as well. But she was regularly armed because she knew that there were people who opposed this work of deliverance and saving people that she was doing. But here's some practical ways I believe in our world today that we can do that, how we can wisely protect ourselves. And I'm going to use verse 9 as kind of a, a, a launching point for that. So go back to verse 9. He says, but we prayed to our God and did background checks on all of our children's volunteers. We do that. But we pray that nothing bad would happen. But you know what we do to protect ourselves, protect our ministry, protect your kids, my kids? You know what we do? We do background checks on all of our kids' volunteers. I just went through the class last Sunday between services. And in, I think, two weeks, I'll be volunteering with the kids. And guess who has to get a background check? I do. Our staff, every two, year gets, two years, gets a background check as well. Why? Because we trust God to protect us. And we do this to demonstrate that we trust God. Do you know why we lock our doors and have burglar alarms and stuff in this building? Do you know why we do that? Because, again, but we prayed to our God, and we set the alarm at night, and we locked our doors. Here's some uh, three other ways. You can write these down. Here, you can write these. Oh, and the other one, too. But we prayed to our God, and we have... Uh, deputy sheriffs and police officers providing security. Why? Because you, you've all seen the news, haven't y'all? So that's what we do here at Bayou City Fellowship. It's a trust God and pray, and we demonstrate our faith and trust by doing this. Here's uh, three ways you can protect ourselves. Number one is this. Often our greatest protection is our Christ-like character. 1 Peter 3.16. 1 Peter 3.16. It's our Christ-like character that protects us. 
What do I mean by that? 1 Peter 3.16, the context of 1 Peter, chapter, uh, 1 Peter itself is trials and persecution. The believers there are being persecuted. And what Peter says is this, what can protect you, guard you, keep you from being persecuted, from being opposed, is your Christ-like character. The people who oppose you may disagree with your testimony, may disagree with your lifestyle, may disagree with everything that you believe in, but what they can't disagree with, what they can't oppose is your work ethic and your character and your marriage and your lifestyle. They can't disagree with that. Matter of fact, uh, when I was, uh, the church I got saved in, Valley Church in Cupertino, um, we were in the hub of Silicon Valley, the heart of Silicon Valley, and I found this out, that many of our elders were actually top, like, administrative folks and engineers with NASA and Lockheed Martin. And the reason why is all these men had top secret clearances, and this is what they did. They looked at their families, their lifestyle. Did they have a side chick who's a spy from Russia? No, they didn't. He said they looked at their work ethic, and he says, though NASA and Martin Marietta or Martin, Lockheed Martin would say, you know what, we don't agree with what you believe in. We don't agree with you having Bible studies here on campus. We don't agree with you having lunches with people that you're reaching out to. We don't agree with any of that. But what we can't disagree with, what we can't oppose you for, is your Christ-like character. The fact that you have an awesome marriage, the fact that you come in early, stay late, the fact that we can trust you with top secret information. He says, we can't speak against that. So very often is this, is in your workplace, at the hospital, at the school, what can protect you is you being a man or woman of integrity. Amen? Second is this. By not advertising ourselves on our mission, and this is from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Not advertising ourselves and our mission. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. If you remember, he gets to Jerusalem, he gets to the city, and he's creeping and peeping. He's like checking things out without telling people what he's doing because he knows if he advertises, hey, I've got orders from King Artaxerxes, I'm back, we're gonna rebuild the wall. He knows that's gonna bring attention to himself and the mission and quickly bring opposition. So what does he do? He goes at night with a very small group of people, and he begins to examine the city. He tells nobody what he's doing. So here's another way to protect yourself by not advertising ourselves and our mission. I know a couple, I know a couple, and since this is broadcast online, I'm not going to say who they are or where they are, but they're in a very highly sensitive part of the world as missionaries. And they have not gone in to this country saying, we're Christian missionaries. We're starting churches. We're doing Bible studies. We're doing some aid to help people and do Bible studies. They're not doing any of that. They have come under the radar. I think they've gone in as engineers and doctors, whatever they're doing. They've flown into this country and they are missionaries. They are sharing the faith. They're doing Bible studies. They're reaching out to their community. They're living with people in this country that persecution of believers is extremely high. You can be jailed for it. So again, even in our world today, I just encourage you, in America, where there is religious liberty, by not advertising ourselves and our mission. And finally, number three is this, by escaping from persecution. By escaping persecution. If you say, but we prayed to our God, and we're like, come at me, come at me, come get me, right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say he defiantly said, I wish you would, right? He didn't say that. He says, he says that, he says they prayed to God and did protection. And here's the two scriptures, Luke chapter four, Luke 4, 28 through 30. 
Luke 4, 28 through 30. I heard a great podcast on this yesterday as I was running. Luke 4, 28 through 30. It was actually by, um, by Adam Greenway, the president of Southwestern Baptist. He's talking about criticism and all that in a recent chapel message. And he said, Jesus was criticized. And then he got so heated that they were trying to take him out. And in chapter 4 of Luke chapter 4, um, Luke 4, verse 28 through 30, what does it say? Jesus avoided the persecution. And he slipped out ninja style. They're like, where'd he go? Where'd he go, right? Same thing happened to Paul in Acts chapter 9, verses 22 through 25. In Acts 9, 22 through 25, he says, Paul comes of faith in Christ, and they wanted to kill him. Here's a Jewish leader who'd now become a Christian leader, an evangelist, and what they wanted to do, they wanted to take him out. So it says they snuck Paul out and lowered him down in a basket. He escaped persecution. He wasn't defiant. He wasn't the tough guy who says, bring it, God's on my side. Didn't say any of that. He says, they escape persecution. And here in this passage in Nehemiah chapter 4, what does Nehemiah do? He sets up people with trumpets bah, 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 to warn people. When the attack was coming, he says, we set up trumpets to warn people so that if we had to, we could escape that threat. So by escaping from persecution. So here's like the, I don't know, the theme of today. Pray for protection and persistence and put it into practice. Pray for protection and persistence and put it into practice. So as you face opposition, which you will, and here's the scary thing, in your life, in your life, a question you need to ask yourself is if you are not facing opposition, if you don't have haters and doubters in your life because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to ask yourself a question. Am I really on fire for the Lord? Am I really living for the Lord? Or have I just blended in like a chameleon to everyone else? Because again, he says that as you do God's work, God's mission, you're going to have haters and doubt. You're going to have opposition. And what do you do during that time? You pray for protection and persistence. God, help me to keep going. And you put it into practice. You exercise wisdom in that. Um, I'm going to leave time. We have a interview thing today at the end, and we're going to put this into practice. Um, I love my daughters. I love my daughters. And I love my daughters with a tender love. But sometimes as a parent, you need to have tough love. Amen, parents? So I remember one time, and this is several times, our daughters, like I mentioned last week, we beat a volleyball tournament. And my daughter, uh, Kimmy, Yvetta, we'd be watching the other team warm up. And they'd have these girls just set, <laughs> crush the ball, crush the ball. And you could just see every time, like she'd wince every time this other team was just hitting, they're called hitting lines. They're warming up. And I mean, these girls look like Olympians. I mean, they're just crushing the ball straight down. And I remember my daughter at times would say, and this is early on, she'd say, Dad, they look really good. They look really good. And I said, I said, Kimmy? I said, everyone looks like an All-American when there's no opposition. Everyone does. I mean, when I played sports, every time we had no opposition, uh, Anthony, we'd play rugby and we'd like do lines and throw stuff. We would look like All-Americans playing rugby with no opposition. We could run all the plays, score, do whatever we want to do. The kicks were always perfect. The passes were perfect. Everyone looks like an All-American when there's no opposition. Or like Mike Tyson says, you can strategize and plan all you want, but when you get hit in the face, that all changes. That first punch in the face changes everything. And so I said this. I said, Kimmy, all you got to do is block one of them. Because I know this. For a lot of players who aren't used to having opposition, that first block 
It messes with their psyche. They're not used to it. And then she said, okay. And I said, and if you get blocked, which you are because you're hitting, you're the outside hitter, you're going to have six girls trying to stop you. You keep swinging and swinging and swinging and swinging. Don't let a little opposition scare you. You keep just swinging and swinging and swinging. And sure enough, that's what happened. The game would start and the team that looked amazing in hitting lines, all of a sudden when there's defense, when there's opposition, they wilted like a flower in the sun. There's one star girl who just crushed the ball. First block after that, she would just start tipping the ball, tipping the ball, tipping it over because she was scared that she was going to get stopped again. And then my daughter, she would go up for the kill and she would swing and she'd get blocked. And I understood something. Instead of letting it get to her head, she just walked away, slapped hands, said, we're going to do it again and do it again and again and again and again. And this is what we found. She kept hearing, I'm sure, my voice in her head saying, keep swinging, keep swinging. You may have opposition. You may have a crowd that opposes you, but your father is with you. You keep swinging. And that's the message for today. In this life, as believers, as we're on mission for God, we are going to have opposition. Nehemiah knows it. Paul knows it. Jesus knew it. We're going to have opposition because we have been brought into the kingdom of light and there's an opposing kingdom of darkness. And you are going to have opposition. But here's the thing. You may get blocked and stuffed and all that every now and then, but don't let it stop you and discourage you. You keep persevering. You pray to God for protection because God's behind you. God's got you. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful um, that we can pray to you, our protector. You're our shepherd. You hold both the rod and the staff, and you're with us. So God, I pray now that as you've broken our hearts, what breaks yours? Just like Nehemiah heard that the walls were down. God, perhaps we're here today and we've begun in the mission of rebuilding, of restoring. Perhaps there's that coworker that we've been reaching out to, taking out to lunch now for months, for weeks. And it seems like there's been no progress made and God, we're discouraged. God, perhaps we're here today and God, we're in that marriage that probably started off on the wrong foot and we feel like we've made the sacrifices. We've died to ourselves. We've given you our hearts and little progress has been made. And God, as we face opposition, God, even from internal opposition, perhaps even from people sitting in the same row as us, God, as we experience opposition from people who do not know you, God, opposition even from our family members who question why we would believe what we believe and who we believe in. God, would you protect us, God? God, we do pray for the persecuted church. God, we know that though we enjoy great liberty, religious liberty here in America, God, around the world, our brothers and sisters are being persecuted and prosecuted. God, more Christians have died in the last uh, 100 years than the first almost 2,000 years of the church, God, martyred because of their faith in Jesus Christ. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Would you protect them, God? Would you give them wisdom as well as they protect themselves? Because again, we pray to our God that he would protect us and we guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. God, would you help us to do that wisely? So again, we pray for those who are discouraged. We pray for those who feel like they've got opposition. God, would you be the wind in their sails today? Would you encourage them today? Would you help them to persevere and master? Ultimately, God, would you be the one who guards us, guards our church, guards our city? guards your body, your flock, your bride. And we ask you all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up on my right and left. 
If you're here today and you're facing opposition in what God's called you to do, naysayers and critics and doubters and haters, they would love to pray for you that you would keep going. But also, if you're discouraged today, if you like you just dug yourself in this pit of discouragement and you can't get out, feel like I'm just lost and hopeless, they would love to pray for you as well. Also, there's an app uh, that we have, the Bayou City Fellowship app. You can submit a prayer request to that. Uh, we'd love to join you in prayer through the app as well.